Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders. That's me. And the other guy chewing his food is Kurt Damon. <laughs> that's Kurt Gasson, the captain of the Enterprise. Yes, I have to Kurt direct the replicator. Kurt. Uh, we are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at Kirk DMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and all this information is on our website, LGGPodcast.com. Uh, today is season three, episode, no, season four, episode. Season four, episode four. Oh, it's up on us. Um, so we are going to revisit the character copyright topic today. It is. Uh, uh, consistently proven to be a popular topic. And last fall, there was uh, an interesting court before the Supreme, uh, the, or sorry, it was an interesting case before the Supreme Court on this that Kirk and I kind of noticed, but didn't really talk about it at the time because we were all still out of the office. I guess we still are. Yeah, uh, we but, still are, but. <laughs> yeah, but we had, we had COVID and other concerns to worry about, and it just kind of uh, didn't get the attention that we wanted to give to it. Uh, so we're going to talk about that case today, kind of go over um, some character copyright stuff, and, uh, and uh, you know, cover that. So if you missed our prior episodes on this, in season one, I think, in the spring, we did a three-episode series or three episode series on character copyright, where we really beat this topic to death. So now we're going to return to that horse. <laughs> Dig it up. <laughs> and we're going to kick it some more, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, and you, you guys know this, you know what it is, and, and Ben definitely knows this. Character copyright is actually one of the areas of intellectual property law I started to find the most fascinating. It's uh, weird. It's weird, but it's also it's one of those things that like makes some sense when you think about it. But it's I constantly look at it as it's copyright really feels like the wrong tool for this. Yeah, but it it's does. kind of the only tool we have. Um, so I think I mean, that's a little bit what you get into. You see a lot of that um, in, in IP where it just sort of seems intuitive that something that somebody is doing is unfair. Uh, and needs to be stopped. So you've got to find whatever intellectual property tool you have to to put a stop to it. And the truth is, we often have we have a lot of things that aren't really one thing, right? Um, you know, software is not it's copyrightable, but it's not just copyright. You know, software has data. Software has sometimes inventions in it. It's got processes and methods. And then with characters, you know, the the origin of the of the character copyright was characters who are depicted visually. And there's a, a good argument for comic book characters and things like that. That once you have a visual depiction of the character, well, that's an image, right? That's a, a photographic image or a work of art. So yeah, you have a copyright in that. And if somebody makes a work of that's similar or draws that character, even if it's in a different setting or something, they're still infringing your copyright. In in um, it's, it's a derivative work basically of your original. And that has since yeah. morphed over time into a, a broader right to character copyright, which we still mostly think of as applying to visual works, but it's not necessarily limited to, to visually depicted characters. Yeah, so it's, I can just give a little background for those of you who haven't listened to our back to our other episodes on this. And again, this is an area of life I'm particularly interesting. So basically, characters are entitled to their own copyright. So when we think of the idea as an individual character, and I'll pick on the big one because we're going to pick on Disney a bit here later, is Mickey Mouse. We kind of look at it and we say Mickey Mouse is a character and um, we know who he is. He's, he's sort of an individual within the, the fantasy world. Now he obviously doesn't exist. He is a character, 
Um, but it's one of those things where we look at it and say, because he's this thing, there's this idea that he should be protected. Only Disney can really use Mickey Mouse. Other people shouldn't be able to use Mickey Mouse. Now, one of the ways he can be protected is trademark. Um, he's used as trademarks, you know, in a number of things. But we look at it and say he's also entitled to what's called a character copyright. And a character copyright says that characters, and the key legal test here is which are sufficiently delineated, um, are entitled to a copyright all their own. What that means is that you can't not just copy Steamboat Willie. You cannot place Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie in another movie and have him be Mickey Mouse. I think that's an important distinction because there's obviously a copyright in the depictions of all these characters, whether they're sufficiently delineated or not, in the works that they appear in. And we're going to talk about this with Star Wars in a little bit, but the Stormtrooper, right? We all know yep. what a Stormtrooper looks like. There is a copyright on the images of stormtroopers that appear in official Star Wars media. Because uh -huh. somebody that works for Disney drew it, and so it's Disney's. Okay, that's simple enough. The question is, can somebody else then independently draw a stormtrooper-like character in some other setting or some other media? And, and what's, what are the limits on Disney's right to stop you from doing that? With Mickey Mouse, it's pretty broad. They have copyright interests. They also, at this point, have trademark interests. They've got registered trademarks for Mickey Mouse and the ears and all kinds of things. Uh, and they're working on getting a trademark for Steamboat Willie. They may have it by now. Uh, but for, for we have a lot of um, popular works like Star Wars that have a ton of extremely well-known, what we would call minor or side characters or stock characters, that nevertheless, I think, are a very crucial visual element of those universes. And that's where this gets really mushy. And that's where the, the best thing to look at is, is character copyright is it's when you look through the cases of character copyright and this idea of sufficiently delineated, one of the things that's really interesting that you get into is the comment of what is a sufficiently delineated character versus what is a sufficiently delineated archetype. Uh, because archetypes are not covered by character copyright. And the court's been very clear about that. And so when you look through the cases, one of the things, and Ben mentioned it earlier, like comic book characters, visual art, depicted characters. There is a case um, early on. It involved uh, the Maltese Falcon and the determination that the textual description of the character was not sufficient to basically grant a character copyright in the character because you don't know what it looks like. You don't have sufficient delineation because people can make them into different things based upon the description. But so you end up with that case coming out there and saying, okay, just describing it's not necessarily enough. Maybe you have to depict it. But then you bump into the, well, but if you depict it, but don't really describe it, how much does that mean? And that's where you get into these questions of minor characters and things like that. And again, for those of you who may have encountered it, I, I don't know if we've ever posted it up, but I did, I did a major paper on this a number of years ago uh, called Whose Universe Is It Anyway? Um, related to the idea of what can you use in a universe without necessarily infringing a character copyright and where do the rights sort of in a universal lie? So the example I had with it is, could I set something at Hogwarts having none of the Harry Potter characters effectively is Hogwarts a character, mm -hmm. um, you know, underneath this, you know, can I set something in the star Wars universe? Now stuff has been done in this. And the example I talk about in the paper, and this is old, people may not necessarily remember it, but there was a parody film released. It's gotta be 20 years ago now, actually it's over 20 years called troops which is a parody. Oh, I remember of that. Yeah. It was cops, yeah. except it was on Tatooine. Yeah. It's on Tatooine and it's stormtroopers and it's a parody of the TV show cops. 
Um, but it's guys dressed in stormtrooper costumes. It's entirely fan made, and it ends with them getting a call that there's been a disturbance at the Beirut re- residence. Yeah, and so it's you know th- there's this sort of joke tie-in in conjunction with the, the events of Star Wars. If you haven't um, seen it, folks, go see if you can find that troops on the internet. Like all the stormtroopers have like Upper Peninsula accents. It's really, funny. <laughs> it's very very funny. It's it's it was extraordinarily well done. It's kind of one of those pieces that I think is held out as an early piece of fan fiction that was actually exceedingly well the done. Jawas over and they're like searching the, the yeah they're searching the thing the, the, the they like give a license to sell this stuff well and remember they actually at the end the Jawas do something and they shoot up the sand tra- the, right, the sand yeah. crawler and that's the sand crawler from Tatooine in Star Wars uh, and so you know it's it's those kind of things where they they played around a lot with this the modern equivalent of it in some respect which is licensed is like the Lego holiday special yeah, you know this kind of like playing around in the universe, doing silly things, you know, with it. Now that one's obviously licensed; there's no issue there. But you know, this is a fan fiction piece. But at the time, Troops was really kind of revolutionary, uh, and people really loved it. I mean, it was it was it's very funny. It's it's a, it's a great play off of it. It's like well that. done. It's just but, well made. Yeah, but what it involves is minor characters. It involves Jawas. It involves stormtroopers. No, the Lars is and yeah, and a bunch of unnamed stormtroopers. Yeah. The, the only time you have a character mentioned at all is the mention of Lars Beru in the final voiceover, which is a thing from cops as well, is the final voiceover at the end. And it just says his name. Mm-hmm. It, says, it doesn't even say his complete name. It's one of those things. It just says the Beru residence, if I remember correctly. And it's one of those things where you're like, is this Star Wars? You know, you know, it's Star Wars, but can this, is this authorized? Is this not authorized? Yeah. Does, does it infringe? Is it a fair use? Yeah. Yeah, that's what got me a lot of interest into this question, actually, is is stuff like that in the fan fiction realm and, and things along those lines. So what you then bump into is what's the thing in conjunction with secondary characters? And it's been well understood of other people using and creating things inside secondary characters and realms. And the example of the one I use is... Um, uh, and now the two names are escaping me. The two guys from Hamlet, and it's the are dead. Both and Cranston and Gildeskern are dead. Uh, you know, which is its own you know, a piece of, of literature. I mean, it's, it's a play technically, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's one of those things where you kind of look at it and say, it's a derivative off of Hamlet. Now Hamlet's not covered by copyright yeah, anymore. That's completely public domain, but it's one of those things where there's, there's a lot of doing this, like exploring backstories and we've seen it happen much more wicked backstory of wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. You know, we're starting to see this kind of play out backstories. Um, one of the ones we just finished watching with the, with the family WandaVision, uh, mm-hmm. you know on disney plus again completely authorized but it's one of those where it's you're starting to see this idea of going back and talking about backstories of filling in gaps and a lot of times it has to do with these filling in backstory characters and we're starting to see more of it so this what has been done for a long ends? time speaking of, of rosencrantz and gildenstern did you ever see a strange brew with bob and doug mckenzie mm-hmm. from uh, second city tv with rick yeah. moranis and uh, dave thomas i mean that's basically hamlet <laughs> except that the main characters are two drunk canadians <laughs> We're in the search for free beer at the Elsinore Brewery. I thought it was, I thought it was Macbeth. What's that? I thought it was Macbeth. No, that's Hamlet. Is it Hamlet? Okay. And the, yeah, I'm pretty sure because the, the hockey player main character goes insane and he's put in an insane asylum. His his uh, da- dad is murdered by the other brewmaster, his brother, and then they even see the they even see him as a ghost at one point. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, it's and the, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's Hamlet. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time. Yeah, there's a lot of this I haven't either. About it. You know, this kind of things. And it's uh, the other one, the other famous one in that same realm is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is obviously the Odyssey. Um, and they even tell you that. They say based on the Odyssey in the, uh, you know, in the credits for it. Um, 
but yeah, it's, you know, and you have all the pieces of it kind of modernized to, you know, you know, early United States, but it definitely sort of modernized beyond, um, you know, ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so what we have with it is this question of, of character copyright. And what you discover as well when you start going through the cases in character copyright is this sufficiently delineated becomes kind of difficult. And where it gets difficult is the idea of characters that are in some sense well thought out, but don't have anything underneath them. So one of the famous ones, cases involving it has to do with a script. And this is where a lot of these cases actually come in is a script was proposed to a TV studio that involved a bunch of Vietnam veterans that drove around and basically helped people. And they all had definitive personalities and and it talks about in the script, here's the personalities of the people. And it's just a single script, but it goes through the personalities, the general explanations of the people if you read those descriptions, you will understand that they are pitching the A-team. Dun, 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 dun. I'm about to cut that part out now. I've exactly. copyright. <laughs> Except for the fact it's not talking about the A-team. The script was for an entirely different TV show, but the A-team was created by that studio at some point in time later. Um, and so the question is, is do you have a character copyright violation? And the answer to that was no. Uh, the court found there was no character copyright violation because effectively this description in the script was insufficient to sufficiently delineate the characters, even though they have very specific elements of their personalities discussed. And I believe they talk about um, elements of Hannibal, the the leader of it, and Mm -hmm. having specific aspects of his personality. And the Mr. T character, I believe they talk about him being afraid of flying, that being an important portion of it. and so there's, there's a number of things like that where you sort of look at it and you say, it's, it's almost too close to be coincidence. But at the same time, if it's not coincidence, what is it? If we look at this and say, are they sufficiently delineated? And that's the one hard part you really get into with character copyright is you bump into this fact of sort of the, once you have the money to basically make the movie, the character's covered. But when you pitch the, the character, it's not because you don't have the money to make the movie. Let's, let's talk about that in the context of this case, because that may be playing yep. into this. Uh, the case is called uh, Daniels versus Walt Disney, or maybe to the way around. But um, a child development specialist named Denise Daniels uh, sued Disney and Pixar about four years ago over the movie Inside Out, which I assume you've seen. But for those of you who I've haven't, it's a, it's a delightful little film with uh, Amy Poehler and, uh, gosh, a ton of people. Louis, uh, Louis Black, I think, is in it appropriately playing the anger character. <laughs> um, but it was basically uh, a movie where you, you get to crawl inside the head of the main character, who's like a 13-ish year old girl yep. who's moving from Minnesota, which she loves, to I think San Francisco. San Francisco. Maybe, Her dad works for a startup. That's right. <laughs> someplace where if you're from Minnesota, you may not love it so much. Um, but she's moving there and all of her, her main personality traits are personified by little characters that we get to see interact inside of her head. And they're like controlling her with a control board and reacting to things. And so she's got as well is that as she, so you, you meet her first as an infant and her emotions are very simple. Yeah. And you see them develop and evolve over time. She gets new control boards. They add swear word buttons and things like that to it. (laughs) Yeah. It starts off with just one button and the only emotion is joy. Who's the sort of lead emotion character. Um, and they slowly add the other emotions. And one of the key things in it is this idea of storing important memories mm-hmm. and storing joyful memories. And Which, like define her personality. And yeah. yeah. And there's parts of the, you see parts of her head that define aspects of her personality. And 
one of the things with it is the idea of these memories and what starts it is she starts having these very important memories that are not joys. They're, they're anger or their fear or their, you know, sadness based memories mm -hmm. that are becoming important to her personality and joy kind of freaking out about this. I mean, that's a lot of the story. Yeah. That's the crux of it is as she moves into a, adulthood, the main character, I forget her name. Um, but as she moves into a, uh, into adulthood, you know, her emotions become more complex and her core memories are not all just happy memories. She has core defining memories that are also sad. So the five emotions she has are joy, sadness, disgust, uh, anger, and something else I can't remember. Um, oh, fear. Fear. Yeah. I can't I forget who plays that one too, but I can see his face. Anyway, so Disney makes this movie and uh, this Denise Daniels claims that she had previously made um, uh, five personified emotions uh, she calls moodsters, which she helps in her you know, practice dealing, helping kids deal with their emotions. Uh, uh, Ms. Daniels characters are, you know, five different anthropomorphic emotions and just like Disney, they're all color coded. So sadness is blue. Anger is red. Uh, I think disgust is green. Uh, yes. Joy is white, maybe, or gold, something like that. Joy is blue. Blue. I thought sadness was blue, but I can't remember. anyway, Daniels sued Disney saying that they stole her characters, even though uh, Disney's movie, uh, there's no allegations, I don't believe, that Disney took the plot points or anything like that, uh, just that they took the characters and the idea of having these personified characters. Yeah, purely characters and obviously the personification of emotions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's five, I don't know if it was the same five emotions or not, but you can imagine probably there was significant overlap there. I, I have uh, the feeling it probably was at least close uh, between the, the same five emotions. And I mean, one of the things as well is that they're, they're defined, if my understanding is from the moodsters by color. And obviously that is an important aspect as well. The characters are, you know, not necessarily they're vaguely humanoid, but they're also defined very strongly by their color. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where you have them, but at the same time, you kind of look at it and say, disgust being green is kind of an obvious one. Yeah. Anger being red is kind Sad of an obvious being one. Blue, you know, um, feeling blue. Joy, joy actually appears human. I just looked them up real okay. quick. Joy appears human. Um, and uh, she's sort of the most humanoid of all of them. And then um, fear is purple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm surprised fear isn't yellow or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, so um, the case went to the Ninth Circuit uh, on and one of the main issues was whether, you know, one of the issues was whether Disney had copied them at all. But um, one of the Disney's defenses is that Miss Daniels characters were not sufficiently delineated to be entitled to copyright protection anyway. So even if Disney had copied them, uh, you know, no harm, no foul. They're not copyrightable. It'd be almost like saying I'm going to copy from the phone book. You know, the phone yeah. numbers aren't copyrightable. So, or I'm going to copy an archetype. And again, that's usually yep. when we talk about character copyright, a character which is not considered sufficiently delineated is an archetype. So uh, that went to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit agreed with uh, the Disney company and said that uh, they were not sufficiently delineated. Um, and the case was then petitioned to the Supreme Court to step in and review it. The Supreme Court has taken on quite a few IP cases over the last year or two, more than they usually do. Uh, but they denied the petition in January. And so the case is effectively settled based on the Ninth Circuit's ruling that, um, you know, that, that they're not sufficiently delineated. And therefore, you know, there's no copyright in the Yep. Um, and again, the key thing to point out, which is what we had with this, the court's finding is that the Moodsters were not sufficiently delineated. So they found yeah. under that standard, they did not find whether or not there's any infringement, whether they're similar or anything like that. They found they're, they're not sufficiently delineated to be entitled to protection. 
Now, from that point of view, they could be identical. That question's never approached. It's simply that they're not sufficiently delineated and therefore not entitled to copyright. What, what got this on Kirk and my radar is a couple of remarks that Disney had made in their briefing for why the Supreme Court should not take it up. Uh, Disney basically argued that there's no need for the Supreme Court to look at this at all because the Ninth Circuit correctly applied uh, the law uh, and the Supreme Court does not go back and re-review facts. So all they would be doing is looking at a review for error of law. Um, and Disney said that uh, they don't need to go back and look at it. Uh, the law here is clear and, and well settled. And they said that if Ms. Daniels got her uh, petition granted to review the case, it would, quote, upend an understanding of copyright law shared by the courts, the Register of Copyrights, Congress, and the leading treatises, end quote. And they characterized it as being not a cure for chaos, but a recipe for it. Uh, and um, they, they basically said, you know, this is all very well settled and doesn't need to be uh, revisited. Um, Kirk, what's your, what's your thoughts on Disney's characterization of the degree of clarity <laughs> in character copyright? Uh, sorry, but I'm with the uh, moodsters on this one. I yeah. do I mean, not I'm, think this to be is clear. We're not criticizing Disney's trial strategy. They pretty much have to say this. This is what you argue. Right? We think the law does need to change if you're Disney. So you're going to say that the law is perfectly clear. Yeah. Well, you also uh, want it at the low level, so you don't want it to be reviewed. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly right. So, uh, so you know, I, I think maybe what would have been a, a stronger argument for Disney is to say, well, look, they're obviously archetypes. The character's name is Joy. She's the personification of happiness. That is almost definitionally an archetype, just a character who's yeah. always happy all the time, character who's always sad, always afraid. Like that's not a, I mean, Disney does a, Pixar does a great job of, of characterizing these, these personality traits. And if you've ever seen the movie, it's extremely well done. Um, but you can kind of see, I see a stronger argument that look, they're just, maybe this is because it was a factual question uh, for the trial court and not for uh, the appellate courts, but I think the strongest argument is inherently a character whose personality trait is having one emotion is one dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, I think the, the thing with this and it's sort of my take of it is I'm not sure I, I, in many respects, I think I side with Disney in this is these are potentially not sufficiently delineated, but I do disagree with sort of Disney's point that this law is clear. Yeah. And again, the reason why I think it's not clear is because what is sufficiently delineated in the way courts have approached sufficiently delineated in some sense, has this problem of the, the further you get down the path, somehow you get to the protection, as opposed to coming up with something up front, which is its own unique character. Um, and again, that's where what we bump into then is you bump into something that says, well, a stormtrooper who by definition is a faceless servant is somehow mm -hmm. sufficiently delineated, but a specific description of a particular character, you know, from a Vietnam veteran that leads a team of Vietnam veterans is not sufficiently delineated, even though in some sense they have more detail. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think you bump into the real problem with this of what kind of detail is necessary. You bump into the written versus visual depiction. You bump into a lot of these sort of questions of, of what does it mean to be sufficiently delineated? And it's just not clear what gives you sufficient delineation? And that's where my take of this is, I think it would have been a good case for the Supreme Court to take. I understood why they didn't take it because in some sense, it, it is sufficiently clear that it has to be sufficient delineation. If you look at it and say the court applied that standard correctly, well, then yeah. yes, there's nothing to appeal. And that's probably what happened here, right? It's not, this, the standard itself is relatively straightforward, but as you just said, what does it mean? I mean, what does yeah. it mean to apply it? And when I read the, between the lines, what I read the Supreme Court saying is, 
We don't know. Um, and <laughs> we're not going to try and guess. Yeah. We're going to defer to the finder of fact and, and let the case law decide this by letting natural disputes kind of bubble up into the court system. And we'll, you know, we'll whack-a-mole them as they come up which you know, is, is how the court system does a lot of things. It's how Congress does a lot of things. They'll pass laws, not really fully understanding how it's going to play out, but kind of trusting the court system and the regulatory agencies to come up with reasonable regulations and where there's you know, uh, problems, uh, they'll, they'll be resolved through, through case law. Uh, so I, you know, I think it's not surprising that, that the Supreme Court declined this case. I think they probably looked at it and said, the rule at least is clear enough. And there's really not much more we can say to make it any clearer because I don't think they want to provide any, any bright line guidance on when exactly a character is sufficiently clear. That kind of line drawing will just encourage game playing with artists and content producers, as well as people who want to steal their stuff. So yeah. you can kind of like how we get very, very few fair use decisions, because every time we get one, the entire industry rearranges itself <laughs> around whatever that decision was, regardless whether that decision says what they think it says. So I, you know, not not surprised at all that that did, that the court took this position. Not surprised, you know, Miss Daniels had little choice but to argue that the law is in chaos. Disney had little choice but to say it's not. Um, but I think she's she's right. I think that the the standard is um, very subjective, very fact dependent. But you know, in the law, just because something's fact dependent doesn't mean it's unclear. It just means that you're going to get a wide variety of outcomes based on relatively small variances in facts. Here, I think the real reason to look at, and so the, again, my take as to why it's unclear, you know, with this. And I also think partially, quite frankly, this case has bad facts. We are talking about characters which are ultimately emotions. As you said, they're one dimensional. One emotion. Yeah. Most of the, the commonality is color. I think if I told you the color, you would guess blue is sadness. Yeah. You would guess, you know, you know, green is disgust. Like, you know, those kind of things would make sense. You know, you would guess red is anger or love. Um, and so, you know, it's those types of things where I think you've got, you've got bad facts here, but what you really get into with it is what does it take for them to be sufficiently delineated? And where I think the confusion lies from many creators and from the courts is what is a particularly a written description or a description where the imagery is not copied is that sufficient in any case to ever be sufficient? And the, the reason why I think that matters so much is because if we look at it and say, no, it can't be. Now, there is a court case, by the way, that finds the opposite of the Maltese Falcon case where they did find that a written description was sufficient. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where when you bump into it and you say, well, in most cases, a written description is not sufficient, but a visual depiction is you now bump into this thing that basically says, well, then how do you cover via character copyright a character which should not be visually depicted? And does that mean that visual depiction automatically gives you character copyright, even if it's a background character? And again, you kind of look at these two sides of that same coin where the court has not been clear on what would make something sufficiently delineated purely in text or what would make something not sufficiently delineated purely in visuals. Well, and the, the, the dependency on visuals presents all kinds of vexing problems. So yes. um, is there a copyright protection in the invisible man? <laughs> you know, I mean, do I, can I get a copyright in a floating disembodied pair of spectacles? Yeah. <laughs> that seems ridiculous, you know, um, or what about the ring rays from Lord of the Rings? You know, Which are effectively um, cloaks. Yeah, they, they have cloaks and clothes, but if you read the books, they have no form. They're they're invisible. You can only see them when you're when you're in the 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 wraith world when you put the ring on. So, uh, so you know maybe, but you know there's no there's no real description of what they look like in the books other than that they're you know embodied by nothingness and that they wear cloaks to give shape to their nothingness. 
So they, they have no form. Sauron, you know, it's it's a menacing eyeball on top of a towel. <laughs> you know, is, is that then his personification is he's super evil. Like, <laughs> is, is that enough? I like to pick on the, I'm going to actually pick on the ring race for a second because what is the difference between a ring race and a dementor in visual appearance? Question. They appear virtually identical. Now, both of these come from underlying separate you know, discussions as to what it is, but they're both essentially these formless wraiths. And in many respects, are they not both wraiths or ghosts, which by definition have no form? Those are an archetype. A ghost is an archetype. A wraith is an archetype. Um, so you kind of bump into this. Well, is a ring wraith now something which is actually a character, whereas a wraith is not? And what's the difference between one of them? And one of the things I talk about in my paper, and I mentioned this before, how much of this actually comes down to it's a ring wraith versus a wraith, or it's a dementor versus a wraith, or it's an insert proper name here instead of a wraith. Well, and then in related questions of, does it matter what you call it? I mean, it shouldn't. We're talking about the visual depiction of it as giving it copyright protection. So what it's called really shouldn't matter, but I suspect it probably does because what it's called and then the narrative elements you build up around it provide additional characterization and kind of flesh out, pardon the pun, <laughs> the... the <laughs> personality or the characterization of, of, the, of whatever it is that you're talking about. But this presents a weird situation, right? If, if the character gets independent copyright protection based on the strength of the visual depiction, but to qualify for that, the visual depiction has to be backed by enough delineating personality characteristic to distinguish it from visually similar other things. It doesn't make any sense, right? So the ring wraith is copyrightable if it has enough personality um, but if it does, then it's just the way that it looks that gets the copyright. It, it doesn't quite follow. And I suspect that one, these issues, these, these particular issues never come up. We, we think of it because we're nerds and we think it's interesting, but um, it, it does present sort of a strange conundrum. And I think what we, I think this may be part of why we don't see this specific issue litigated that much. What we usually find the cases decided on is fair use where the defendants say, well, even if it is a character and even if it is a copyright infringement, uh, this is a fair use. And we, if, if you read our prior episode on this, we went through a list of six or seven cases. And I think almost all of them were decided on fair use as opposed to whether the characters were sufficiently delineated, which, which may suggest that the courts look at this and kind of decide maybe who they think is right on, under the law and just kind of back their way into the most, the, the simplest and easiest to understand, uh, you know, explanation for it. And it's, it really is this thing where you, again, I think the, so much of what you bump into is in conjunction with discussing this is because they've made this statement that it's, it's, a, it's a character or it's an archetype. And the thing that I keep bumping into is not so much as visual depiction, but how much of it is, you know, how much of it depends on it having a name. Uh, and the idea that, and again, I'll pick on it sort of as to you know what it is. Luke Skywalker is Luke Skywalker. He's not a desert dwelling guy who grew up alone, who happens to be adopted, who's a bit of a whiny jerk, you know, that <laughs> also wears just white clothing that's appropriate for a desert environment. Mm -hmm. His visual depiction is a human and it's Mark Hamill. I mean, you know, that's the visual depiction of him. He doesn't have any real defining visual depiction except for maybe having a lightsaber. Um, but sort of, later, he never once uses exactly. it in combat in the first episode. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you kind of bump into those types of things as to, you know, you know, what, what is it that makes him a character? Is it the fact that I'm talking about 
Luke Skywalker versus talking about, you know, and, and to pick on the, the throne trilogy for a while, Luke double use, <laughs> you know, well, uh, along those lines, uh, droids, androids. So I, 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 I emailed, when I emailed Kirk the topic this morning, I said, uh, you know, let's talk about R2-D2 because this presents a really difficult problem. R2-D2 looks almost exactly like every other R2 unit in the entire movie, but for coloration, right? Yeah. And it's incomprehensible that in the entire Star Wars universe, there's not another blue and white droid anywhere, right? There's got to be one somewhere. We just never <laughs> see it. So, you know, R2-D2, is, is that visual depiction sufficiently delineated for the character of R2-D2 to receive independent protection outside of how he's shown in you know, official Disney releases, media, et cetera. Um, if it is, and it's based on his personality established over the course of the series, which we all know he's, he's brave, he's uh, a little stubborn. Um, he's- uh, Sarcastic. Uh, sarcastic, yeah. Uh, and, and same with C-3PO, you know, we know he's sort of a dithering, um, <laughs> timid uh, droid. He's afraid of everything all the time. He doesn't really have any heroic moments. But we also meet protocol droids that are not like that. When he's on Cloud City, he sees another one that swears at him in some foreign language. <laughs> so we know that that's his personality. They're all the same. So can I just draw a protocol droid out of context and say, well, as long as it's not C-3PO, it's fine. Yeah, and actually R2-D2 is a great example because you also then bump into the, well, is R2-D2 shape what makes him? Because there are some slightly different R2 unit shapes, but there's a number of them that look exactly the same shape he is, but are just different colors. Is there a coverage to the R2 unit generally? If mm -hmm. so, what character is that? Because it Sounds like an archetype. Yeah, and most, and most you know, droids other than R2-D2 say nothing. You don't even beep. You know, I mean, R2 yeah. is deeps. Um, and Except so for the gonk droid. The gonk droid definitely has a copyright protection. <laughs> and so you, you know, know exactly what I'm talking about when I say gonk droid. I think everybody knows the gonk droid. Gonk is, is enough. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's it's those types of things with it. And we're, again, I think what, you know, when I'm looking at it and saying where the confusion lies here in conjunction with this is it's really not clear at all what the meets and bounds of this law are. And I think that's what, in some sense, the Moodsters was trying to argue about in conjunction with this is it's, it's not clear what the meets and bounds of this is. If we want to say that R2 is covered as R2 unit generally, then shouldn't emotion as emotion generally be covered? You know, I mean, if we say that they're depicted by colors, you know, stuff like that, vaguely humanoid fashion, you know, we start bumping into it. The example I give in the paper, and it's actually one of the ones I, I did with it. And I said, if I was to go in and say, I'm going to, you know, create a world and as part of my world, I want to have essentially a shamanic religious, um, you know, tradition. And the point of this is that they wear a carving of the animal on their head. Mm -hmm. Is that sufficient to say that I now cover shamanic you know traditions wearing a wooden carving of an animal on their head or do i have to depict it well and if i depict it if i depict one that shows a bear does that now cover one that shows an eagle or how about a fish mm -hmm. and those are the kind of things that you get into is it's where's my scope in conjunction with this and so do i have an advantage of going in and saying well now that i've created this idea that i want this thing i'm going to create one depiction of one which is going to be the cover of my book that shows it with a bear so that now I completely control this entire area. Cause now I have the visual depiction plus my text in the thing versus if I just did the text and I don't get it, like, is that right? Yeah. So the, the question of whether your novel has the right art on the cover decides the scope of the copyright, that doesn't seem like the way the law is meant to work. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem correct. It, it seems like there's, you know, the idea of this sort of, you know, relationship and sort of things like that. And again, you can see, 
where we, you know, why this area interests me is because again, you get into this just complicated question of what is the scope of this? What does it really mean? And again, that's what I look at this case as sort of saying, oh, I say I, dis- I disagree with Disney and the fact that this is well delineated law is while I think the law is well delineated that they have to be sufficiently delineated, probably my double use of delineated there. <laughs> um, the What you also bump into then is what does sufficiently delineated actually mean? And is there any real test for what sufficiently delineated actually means? And that's where it seems like that's that's the question we in some sense need the Supreme Court to look at. And it's not like the Supreme Court hasn't come back and said tests need more meat on them. I mean, they yeah. say things like that. You know, The test may be well-defined, but how to apply the test needs more meat on it. This is something they could have taken. Well, this is something I found is, is common with, with the law, not just limited to this area, but you sometimes find a court that'll say, well, here's what it means, but the explanation doesn't really tell you anything else. So here's some expansion on this. Uh, courts recognize that the process of differentiation requires first identifying the character's specific non-generic traits, and then assessing whether those traits sufficiently delineate the character. Well, it just sounds again like we're saying circular. sufficiently delineated. I mean, it's a little it's, circular. Like, well, so it's it's a question begging exercise, right? Identify the non-generic traits. Well, okay. Well, what what's generic to a droid other than it's robotic? You know, is is it generic that that R two D two beeps instead of talks? Is it generic that C three PO has a humanoid form? What's what is generic to a droid other than that it's mechanical? Yeah, presumably it's an artificial form of life. You know, that's, I think, yeah. what most people would say. Nobody would confuse data as being part of the Star Wars universe, yeah. you know? But also the difference is, and particularly you use Star Wars, what's the difference between a droid, a robot, a cyborg? You know, I mean, I can come up with a hundred different names for, you know, what the, for what robots generically are in science fiction, you know, are those somehow specifically delineated because a droid is more delineated than, you know, a um, artificial life form. It's I'm trying to think what the term is they use for data um, or to That's use it, yeah. the other one I was looking for is one from aliens, a synthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, is a droid different from a synthetic? Is data different from a synthetic? Like, you know, they're both humanoid. They're both designed to look human. You know, how do you sort of bump into those types of, of questions as to, again, what does it mean? And this is where it get, I think it gets really hard as to, you know, can I talk about the insane King of Scotland you know, as opposed to the insane skin of King of Denmark, um, you know, it, 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 without, you know, infringing a copyright because one of those is Hamlet and one of them is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you, you get into those kind of really difficult questions where it's just not clear what the bounds of character copyright are. And then again, I say the next question for it is, is what if it's not a character. So we look at it and say a, a droid is not a human thing. Mm-hmm. It's a mechanical machine creation. Is Hogwarts entitled to a character copyright? Is a Sandcrawler entitled to, you know, character copyright? What about a Kit the Knight Rider car? It has a personality. Yeah. The Batmobile. (laughs) Yeah. And so you start getting into these like, you know, inanimate things, which are a component of particular stuff. Um, You know, one of the ones you then kind of bump into is what about a giant moth or a giant ape? King Kong, Mm -hmm. anyone? Um, You know, is that a sufficiently delineated character? It's a big ape. Technically, it's a big gorilla, I believe. But it's it's one of those things where it's like, what does that mean to be King Kong versus meaning being a giant ape? Yeah, some other giant creature. You know, I mean, there was that movie that Pacific was the Pacific Rim where they were they had the, the Jaeger robots and were fighting all these monsters from the sea. And I mean, it was Godzilla versus robots. Except it, it wasn't say, Godzilla. It was. I mean, <laughs> except it wasn't Godzilla. Yeah, but it wasn't Godzilla. It was somebody else. Uh, so let's let's go one more more thought exercise here, and then as I told Kirk before the we started recording, I've got to run because I've got children all over the country at this point. Um, 
how would we apply this to a Mandalorian? Not the Mandalorian, a Mandalorian. Is that an archetype or is that a sufficiently delineated character? And that's, that's one of the things I think you really bump into is when we start saying a Mandalorian as to what it is, we have had multiple Mandalorians. And again, um, I was saying Ben beforehand, we just finished season six, uh, Lost Missions for the Clone Wars, uh, which I will tell us if you're a Star Wars fan and you have not watched the Clone Wars, watch the Clone Wars. Like it makes some of the movies make much more sense. And quite frankly, I like the movies better now because like, especially the prequels, because stuff in them makes sense. Uh, I would really like to like the prequels better. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to watch them and I'll let you know. We'll do a follow up. (laughs) I'm not sure it affects episode one, but I don't don't know if episode one is salvageable. (laughs) But you know, so you you kind of get into the thing is you see multiple Mandalorians. We have seen the fact that Mandalorians have different personalities. Again, for we've talked about the Mandalorian in this, can you, or can you not take off your helmet? Some Um, of them do, some of them don't. Yeah, you know, so what's a, what is the characteristics of a Mandalorian? Well, they have these same kind of helmets, but the armor looks different. You know, the female armor looks quite different than the male armor does. The thing is, if I drew you a picture, you'd be able to tell me, yes, that's a Mandalorian or not. If I just made up a character, you would know immediately whether it was. Mm-hmm. And they've even played around on the Mandalorian. And again, for the spoiler alert, for those of you who haven't seen season two of the Mandalorian, is Boba Fett wearing Mandalorian armor? Um, because technically his armor predates Mandalorian armor. Yes. <laughs> and so it's one of those kind of, you know, like kind of crazy questions, you know, as to what you have from this is it's what really is a Mandalorian. And we start looking at it and saying, well, isn't it an archetype? It's, it's this character that's got a great martial tradition that follows these kind of things. We can very quickly define a Mandalorian via its archetype, mm-hmm. but we can't get a character copyright in an archetype. So, what makes it a Mandalorian? But I guarantee you, if I went out and started a, a, a series on on Ben Vision and I called it another <laughs> Mandalorian, I'd get sued and I would lose. <laughs> but if you called it a bounty hunter, a bounty hunter story, and yeah. you know you, you depicted somebody who's in clearly you know a Mandalorian helmet, let's just use that as the example, has a jetpack which looks like something out of mm-hmm. you know James Bond from the sixties, um, and you know happen to have you know. Boba Fettish personality. Yeah. That an roguish, brutal. Yeah. Morally yeah. flexible. <laughs> <laughs> Morally flexible. There's a good example of sort of, you know, you bump into. Um, but yeah, those kind of things is to, you know, again, what makes it the Mandalorian? If I don't call it a Mandalorian, I just call it a bounty hunter. Well, not even, even all Mandalorians are is, Yeah. So if I avoid the visual depiction, that helps. And if I just use the shared characteristics of any bounty hunter, well, then, then you're, it seems that you're pretty clearly in, in generic ar- archetype land. And then you kind of build out your personality from there. But I think the more you layer onto that, that, you know, we're going to collect bounties from the, the Wampa ice creature on the planet Horse. Like, okay, well, now, now you're bordering on farce, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're clearly referencing the Star Wars universe. I think at that point, you're, you're asking for trouble. One of the good examples that I think goes back, for those of you who may know it, anybody who knows the comic strip Outland, um, which is the sequel to Bloom mm-hmm. County, um, you know, from Berkeley Breed in the 80s, um, one of the initial characters in Outland was Mortimer Mouse. And, right. and there was some controversy over Mortimer Mouse and Mickey Mouse um, as to what it was. And I believe actually one of the things is they actually say at one point in time, Mortimer Mouse is actually a rat. If I remember correctly, they actually say that is one of the things with it. You know, he ends up disappearing out of Outland. Uh, he's only a character for probably the first you know six months or so. Um, but it's one of those things where my, my understanding is there was some dispute, you know, with Disney over Mickey Mouse and Mortimer Mouse, because in some respects, I think Mortimer Mouse was designed to be a parody of Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, but you, you kind of bump into that question again of where do the scope of these things lie? And that's what really becomes interesting. Again, that's what becomes interesting here. Like I said, I think this is a bad facts case because yeah, I look at it. I, I agree. Say, 
emotions being my colors. The example of the one, and it's, it's one I wanted to mention, my favorite Taylor Swift ta- song is Red. Um, it always has in a, you know, in, and for those of you, I'm not a Swifty, but I mean, I like Taylor Swift when she was country. Um, so it's one of those where, you know, but I've always liked the song because the visual evocative of saying my emotion is a color mm-hmm. um, is a very good thing. But that's the concept of passionate love being read appears in multiple songs. Um, so again, it appears in Red by Taylor Swift. It appears in The Red Strokes by Garth Brooks. You know, they're both using the idea of it's this color representing, in this case, passionate love. We have in uh, Inside Out, it representing anger. And so now we kind of bump into the idea of, well, what does red really then depict when we think about mm. it as being an emotion? Is this something which is archetypal? It's not only just archetypal, it's arguably archetypal for multiple different archetypes. That's a good point. That's a good point. There's there's some things, there's almost a sans affair type argument where, yeah, if you're going to depict some sort of um, you know, uh, illustrative incarnation of the concept of love or anger. Interestingly, you're probably going to use the same color for both. <laughs> and there might be a reason for that. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, we're going to ramp it up here. Um, I may, we may push out um, a rewind episode uh, between now and our next one. We're really waiting for the Google, the Oracle case to come down and we're interested in what's going to happen with that. But we are going to do sort of a deeper dive into that. And in particular, how it may impact open source which I, th- I think Kirk and I both think the impact is sort of non-intuitive. Uh, there's a lot of commentary out there on the, the Weber tubes over how um, if Oracle wins, it will mean the end of open source. I don't think I agree. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that in a little bit. Um, but that's all, that's all for, uh, for this one. So that will be coming up soon. And we've got some other topics planned. And hopefully, as I just got Kirk, got, Kirk, you got your COVID shot. I got my COVID shot. We're moving, we're moving ahead. So uh, if, if we're fortunate, we may be able to get back into the studio and record at some point. Uh, soon, or at least record in the same room together, which would be nice. Because um, uh, otherwise, I have to stare at Kirk on this tiny uh, screen on my computer. So, anyway, so that's what's uh, coming up for us. Uh, we hope you all are continuing to stay safe, uh, safe and healthy as the pandemic is seemingly winding down. Fingers crossed, no jinx. Uh, and in the meantime, check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us. You can do that on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. I'm told that reviews help new listeners find us. We haven't gotten a review in a while, but we do keep picking up new listeners or new viewers, at least on Facebook. I don't know how, because I'm not really promoting us on Facebook, but people are finding us there. So thank you, Facebook uh, finders. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 